1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham right here at Talk Radio. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. As I've often said already this week, we are at a crossroads and the Prime Minister needs to make sure he goes down the right fork in that particular crossroads of the road. This morning, I came into work on public transport for the first time since March and I was shocked to discover how quiet it was, how utterly deserted the buses and the trains are and how completely hopeless the economy has become because of the millions of people who are simply refusing to return to work. Since I published a picture on Twitter a little bit earlier on today. People have been arguing with each other about why they love working from home, why they think they should be allowed to work from home, why they think they will never come back to work in the city it really is quite a depressing situation and people really need to get a grip of themselves i would say and they need to get to the point where they are traveling once again on public transport it's not scary you're not going to die you're not going to you know fall ill you are simply going to actually get on a train and go to work and that is what work And people and life is all about London is a ghost town right now And there is no sign of that changing Despite government encouragement It is the case that companies are refusing To repopulate their offices Our workers who are keen to come back Actually being told not to bother That would seem to be part of the story And we need your help as ever On the Independent Republic We need to know from you What you are being told by the companies that you work for. What are your bosses saying to you? Are they saying to you, don't worry, you can just keep working from home and you don't have to worry about coming in anymore because we will save a bunch of money. Well, guess what they're gonna do next? They're gonna save a bunch more money by giving your jobs to people that work in the Indian subcontinent or possibly in Korea or possibly in Mexico or in countries where they can pay people a lot less to do exactly what you do, sitting at home, not coming to an office and working remotely. That's where we're heading. So if you think it's a great idea to work from home, spend more time with your kids, Spend more time with the wife. Spend more time with the husband. That is not going to be the future for very long. I can promise you that. 0344 499 1000. Coming up uh, in this first hour we're going to speak to William Clouse, the leader of the Social Democratic Party uh, and somebody who actually has a very even-handed view of the way that things are. We'll find out what he's making of what's going on right now. Coming up later on we'll also bring you the latest in the serco illegrant migrant scandal. They're once again refusing to answer our questions and they're hoping that we are just going to go away. Well I've got some news from Rupert Soames and his collection of well upholstered directors. We ain't going anywhere and we want answers about just how many people have been put up in hotels after arriving on these shores illegally and just how much is that costing us. I've been asking you to get in touch with your MPs. I've been very encouraged to see that many of you are responding to me on social media telling me what your MPs are saying. ...telling me when your MPs are not responding to you... Uh, ...and all all in all, we are building a movement here... ...we are building something very, very good... ...and very, very strong... ...and we will get to the bottom of the Serco story... Trust me. 0344 499 1000. Also, we are welcoming a new face to the home of Common Sense today. She is Helen Dale, an Australian author and commentator who will bring us her take on the cancel culture and how we must fight our corner against the anti-free speech minority in this country. We'll also bring you the latest from the holiday zones, the departure lounges and the destinations that you can go to without fear or favour. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, you might be forgiven for wondering what on earth has happened. Because we are... Somewhat in the dead zone, we are kind of in the dog days of summer. Uh, you know it 's rather warm it 's rather blustery out there it 's quite windy, um, it 's not very nice it 's not a very pleasant atmosphere there 's hardly anybody doing anything really, very much to speak of there 's not very much news around in brief, in short. on the front page of The Times today, uh, the story is this red tape to be slashed in planning revolution, which basically means uh, that if you are uh, in the building trade you 'll probably be able to make loads and loads of money by building new homes. We had a conversation yesterday with a couple callers about what was going to happen to the property market in this country because as we know Lots and lots of buildings in the centre of London are basically unoccupied. They're empty. There's nobody in them. And if you are the renter of those kinds of properties or the owner of those kinds of properties, it seems incredible, does it not, that those properties have not actually plummeted in price. You know, where is the value in owning commercial property in the centre of London if nobody is willing to actually occupy those floor spaces? Let's talk to William Claussen now, leader of the SDP, to find out what he makes of it all. William, very good morning to you.
0: Thanks very much. Yeah, great to
1: be back. Yeah, great to have you back. Uh, You are always a very sensible voice on on, on these matters. I mean, I was actually quite shocked. The first time really properly being on the underground at rush hour. I've been on it once or twice before and I've been going out for dinner in the evenings. First time this morning, uh, William, on the the train at eight Mm. o'clock when it would normally be literally you'd have to sometimes wait for two trains to come before you could get on one. Uh, Today, there was literally, you know, I would say 50% occupancy of the seats. I was able to stand at one end of the train with nobody standing next to me. Um, there was literally nobody on a bus that I got on. You know, it's bizarre.
0: Yeah, here's, so here's the question, and it's a massive question for our, uh, particularly our big cities. Will we ever get back to, to to the habit of going to the office? Yeah. You know, will people actually go back? And and actually, so much of our cities, it's an ecosystem, isn't it? And it, and so if you if you don't have office workers, you don't have people shopping at, at lunch hour. You know, people going to bars and restaurants and pubs. So all of these things are interlinked. But it's it's still actually too early to say. What's going to happen? If you speak to people in the commercial property world, um, some people will say, no, it'll go back. You know, mean reversion will, will take care of that. You know, it used to be the case that people, you know, got on the tube and came in and went to the office, and that'll return. Yeah. Uh, and then you speak to other people, say, no, actually, no, this is a step change, absolute game changer. A lot of people are quite happy sitting at home uh, on their computer or doing Zoom meetings, and, and it'll never go back. And actually, I don't know. Um, the the answer to this but mm. it, but I think we have to we really have to and if if you if we go through an adaptation now uh it's our cities are, are, are absolutely uh, you know up the creek.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. And I've been saying this for a while because at the end of the day, what people don't seem to realise is that the city's the lifeblood of the economy. You know, it's not just about the hospitality business. It's not just about going out for lunch and having a great time. It's about Mm. all the people who are engaged in running sandwich shops, engaged in running (laughs) the fast food restaurants, the pizza places, you know, the burger joints, you know, all of the kind of relatively cheap end of the market and the expensive end of the market. And at the moment, we have no tourists to speak of. So there's lots of businesses that aren't opening up. But we need to get back to a kind of form of of normality. Um, And all these idiots who keep saying, oh, don't worry, I'm quite happy working from home. Well, guess what? Somebody's going to replace you in India. Somebody's going to replace you in Mexico because your bosses will work out that, you know, if Johnny Boy can do his job from Woking, we can get somebody to do it from New
0: Delhi for half the price. That's true, but there's also another factor here, which is that I th- and I think this. If you take a, an optimistic view on people going back to work, I think this might happen. Whereby, imagine an office, you know, opens up properly, yeah. and they say, look, you, you know, all the staff are welcome back, and then you get 20% or 30% of staff going back, and then the people left at home are thinking, oh, well, I wonder what's happening. Mm. I wonder what they're saying and I wonder what, you know, what, what's happening at work so they're, they're, I think they will suffer FOMO you know, the fear of missing out yeah. they'll be at home and all the, all the key decisions and the promotions and the networking and the sort yes. of social human interactions will take place uh, without them now yeah. the funny thing is about 20% I think, you know, the society breaks into sort of 20, 80, 20, you know, something like that. Right. Uh, and, and I think about 20% of people never liked work anyway. Right. <laughs> they didn't like going No, to work. listen,
1: I realise that, for example, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I love my job. I look forward mm. to doing it every single day. I know that most people do not feel that way.
0: Mm. No, they don't. And, and, and what, what we've, you know, what the through government action and everything else, we've, we've proven one thing, which is that if you, if, you, if you were prepared to just send food parcels home, a lot of people would stay at home for good.
2: Yeah.
1: oh yeah Yeah, and I mean but that that, that bothers me quite a lot William and I know that Mm. we we, I mean I I, generally speaking do not wish to tell people what to do Mm. I'm not an an authoritarian I don't believe that I I should have any rights over anybody else I just want to be left alone to do what I want to do and I think your party kind of believes in that as well it's a sort of self-determination but there's no question that there's an awful lot of people out there uh, who are frightened to come back into work they don't want to get on the train because they think Mm. they might get some kind of disease and die Mm. there's no real evidence for any of that and yet they're using it as a as a as an absolute reason to stay home
0: yeah but i think this is this is where i think it'll change mike because i think when you do when when the trickle of, you know return to offices starts honestly I, you know a lot of people will um will will just think I, I, what am i missing out on yeah. you know and the key decision i mean for instance if you're a young person you want a, a promotion or you want to to, to to you know get to know your boss better Got, you can't do that from mm. home. You just it can't be done. And so, and it, but you, you're right. I mean, it, everything links to everything else. I mean, if people don't return back to work, then the whole industry of workplace clothes is gone. Right you know people but also you know what
1: i've i've detected this from a few millennials that i've worked with over the course Mm. of the last few recent years they Mm. don't feel the same way about work that you and i did you know i mean i love my job always have done i was talking to a guy uh called brian uh, rose yesterday from london Mm. real i did an interview with him and he said Mm. it's so great to be able to interview people again in a studio we've Mm. been doing everything on zoom for so long but you just can't. and it's true you can't interview i mean you and i talking on the phone out of necessity but it would be a very different conversation if you were sitting here because it's a different relationship you know. Know? And, it, and it's better, basically, to be in front of people and to see people and to be able to interact with people. But there's a lot of people, I think, uh, who are in their twenties who yeah. don't have the same drive about work. You know, work to them is a kind of means to an end. It's it's what makes them enough money to go on holiday, and they spend more time wondering about their holidays than they do about their work. And they don't actually care what they do for a living um, as long as it makes them a bit of money to
0: go on holiday. Yeah, I think but to some extent that's always been the case. I think people. you Not know, in, people in my have... world. Well, no, well, maybe maybe in your world that's, that's different, but I think to some extent it's always been a little bit like that. I think, I mean, a lot of people are very motivated. Long, a lot of young people are, are switched on. I think the screen thing is a big cultural difference between, say, our generation mm. and, and younger people. I think, And I think you're right. I just don't think you can interact properly. You, you read someone if you're next to yeah. them. You know, and so much is, is, is social. We are social animals. I I'm, I think long-term, I think the the mean reversion thing will probably play out. I, mm. I can't see these cities remaining sort of, you know, like ghost towns forever. I think, and I think that the key to the solution, as I say, is to trickle back to work. You get people going back to work, and the others I think, actually, I'm missing out.
1: Yes, I think that's right. However, if it turns out that that's not going to happen, and I've been asking this question for a while now, is it not time for the government to kind of consider... What is going to happen to the inner cities? What is going to happen to somewhere like London, which to a large extent has become a little bit lawless in places. You mm-hmm. know, it's not as occupied by people as it used to be. I was talking to a friend of mine in New York the other day uh, who said New York is now becoming quite a dangerous place again after having years and years and years, decades in fact since 9-11, of being very nice and friendly and all yeah. that. Now they've got a situation where every bar is closing at 11 o'clock at night. The yeah. streets of New York City after 11 o'clock at night are now quite dangerous.
0: Yeah, no. Well, my eldest lives there, and he he's uh, lives in Brooklyn, works in, works in Manhattan. Although he, he doesn't work in Manhattan anymore, mm. because the office is closed. But no, I, that's that's right. I think th- this is very interesting. So you'll pick up the su- you know color supplement on. Uh, on on Sunday, and there'll be lots of pieces about the flight to the country. So everyone will be talking about, you know, are the cities over? Um, I think there will be, there could well be a switch. I mean, you're quite right in the the atmosphere in places like New York, and I think to some extent London, you know, bohemian, cosmopolitan, open, friendly. Well, actually the gloss can change pretty quickly if if the right things aren't in place. It's it's too, it's far, far too early to tell. I I think again, taking a really, really long-term view, this, um, one of the Portuguese authors are like Essa de Caras wrote a book in the late 1800s uh, City in the Mountains it was all about him living in Paris and he didn't like Paris then he went off to northern Portugal and I think there's always been this this clash between a sort of impetus a, a desire to, to, to escape to the country hmm. and, and and do we want to live in the town it depends what town it is I think that's the key you know, yes. it depends what the quality is yeah no I think so and also it depends on how much money you've got as
1: well because Mm -hmm. it's all very well moving to the country if you can afford it and you can use the money that you're selling your house for in London to buy a big mansion in in the countryside Um, and if you can work from home which a lot of people in middle class jobs can do they can do it but you know the country as I've discovered to my cost at various points in my life uh, can be a very bleak place particularly in the winter time you know when it's dark when there's literally no street lights in the village in which you live when you can't go out anywhere there's nothing to do Your kids are frustrated because they don't have any friends close enough by to walk around and see them. You know, there's plenty of things that are wrong with the country as well. Yeah,
0: that's right. And and, there used to be things like bus services, Mike, and they've gone. Yes. I mean, I mean,
1: I I go to Sussex where my kids live every weekend. There's about one bus a day that goes from Bexhill to Hastings. That's it.
0: Yeah, you no, know, they've, one they've way
1: goes and then come back the other way, you know, an hour, you know, sort of several hours later. It's
0: well, hopeless. We need to look at that. I mean, rural bus transport is, is, is not terribly expensive to get it back to the levels it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, again, it hasn't been prioritised by the government. But you're quite right. I mean, it depends what sort of, you know, what side of the tracks you're on, actually, yeah. really, because it's like the lockdown. A lot of people sitting in very nice houses in the country have enjoyed the lockdown. Yeah. And actually, quite a, you know, a lot of them are saying, well, oh, keep, keep it going. But, but it's that's not, the thing. And it's also... It's costing them.
1: No, but look at places like Corleone where you hear from the locals that they hate the influx of what they call incomers from London, yeah, buying yeah. houses like David Cameron did in St Ives, pushing yeah. up the prices, you yeah. know, pushing out the locals, making it impossible for local people to buy any property, you know, uh, including uh, sort of, you know, Rick Stein restaurants and, and, yeah. and Jamie Oliver restaurants and all that kind of thing. People don't like all that.
0: There was a very good film uh, which was put out last year called Bait, uh, about that was a black and white film and it was all about that, that mm. question of sort of you know, people coming down with hampers full of champagne right. and uh, you know, spoiling it all now it's interesting I mean yeah certainly we, 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 we've never we, we haven't got planning right in this country I mean obviously you, you know you might want to speak about this new planning uh, for the future mm. one, which the government put out and you know may, maybe they'll 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 prioritise it but you know I, I, it's interesting I mean the the, the, the white paper they the Polish isn't really targeting the, the right questions in my no life. well I mean there's no doubt that the
1: planning system can be a little bit kind of you know awkward and difficult to navigate but by yeah. the same token what you don't want is to have no planning rules whatsoever because God knows what will happen then I mean you'll end up with with a sort of northeastern corridor like we see in America yeah. uh, again which is a place I know well where yeah. you drive literally from Washington DC yeah. up to up to um, New Haven Connecticut and you don't see any any uh, sort of green belt.
0: No, no. It's. I mean, I have to say. I mean, I'm going to call the government out on this. The 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 the, the, the new white paper doesn't really address the serious, the real causes of the <clears throat> housing crisis in the UK. Right. I mean, you know, if you think about the planning system like a sort of pipeline, what its job is to, is is to is to is to through the you know a local plan uh, system to to allocate housing hmm. land and to pr- to get a proper supply of housing land now largely it does that i mean you know on on the data uh you know last year 382,000 houses were, were you know given permission uh they're not all implemented of course hmm. you know so the, the the supply of consents as it were is is sufficient the government what the government won't talk about is the, the two uh problems they have uh, with housing in the, in the UK which yeah. is first they, they, they haven't prioritised any council house building or social house building. They, they just don't do that. I mean, the previous Tory governments used to get involved. You know, Macmillan's government in the 50s built millions of homes. But they just, they've got off that. They, just, they won't look at that. They will not look at the supply side from the state sector. That's a problem. And the other thing they won't look at is immigration. You can't have very, very high levels of immigration and then not bother building any houses. No. But well, I
1: mean, it. we've got an ongoing row going at the moment with Serco. You may have been listening to the show yeah, yeah, and you'll know it. about that. I mean, I'm staggered by what we're discovering on a day-to-day basis. You know, we've got a statement from them again, which I'm going to read out later on today, mm-hmm. uh, as yeah. to how many people they're looking after. But they're only one of three companies who are yeah. looking after these people. We found out, for example, this week that we have these, you know, places of housing in mm. cities around the country where mm. they're basically called sanctuary Cities yeah. in places like York, where asylum seekers are given precedence in council housing mm. above other people. Now, the only thing that's going to prove to me is a kind of uh, encouragement for people to hate asylum seekers.
0: Well, yeah, it will cause tension. I mean, it, it certainly will cause tension. But the whole immigration policy is wrong. I mean, they, they, they've got a. They've, we've built. Part of our economy on very very high immigration that could change of course uh, you know you know getting out of the European Union properly where you can actually make your own rules mm. to, to a greater extent that that that's that's a bonus but we have a model where you know it's the same in the university sector you, know, you, you, you have a model which relies on very very high levels you know of of immigration each year and and um you can have that you might have that i mean I think we think as a party, the immigration is far too high yeah. and actually for for the reasons of social cohesion, we should have uh, probably an immigration pause you know for for could be ten twenty years just to let things settle down not you wouldn 't get rid of all immigration, but you know uh, get it down to to reasonable levels you know in 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 the tens of thousands yeah. uh, and that would be that would be bene- very beneficial, but what the government can 't do and what the, this government and previous governments have done for years, literally decades, Mike, is have, you know, uh, immigration running into several hundred thousands, and then not have any state sector housing. They just don't do it. And that's partly linked to your circo problem. I mean, you're, you're, what you're doing with that is, is, is great investigative uh, journalism. I mean, you, you need, Someone needs to pick up. The yeah. Paper. I mean, no one's talking about it.
1: Well, no one's talking about it. And also, I didn't i re- think of myself to be relatively well-informed. I had no idea that this was going on. And what mm. it does is create a sort of two-tier society where mm. some people who are struggling because they might be struggling because of the COVID virus, they might be struggling because they've been laid off, they might be struggling because they can't get a council house, and suddenly yeah. they find out that these people who have arrived here illegally on dinghies from France have mm. been given ho- houses ahead of them it's just not right
0: it is it's terrible what what they what they don't realize these uh conservatives and and new labor governments they they don't realize that what they're doing is slowly breaking the social contract yeah because people if you pay into a system a national democracy a fundamental idea is that you might want to control your own borders Mm. and we don't have that if you, you persistently day by day let people just rock up on the kent coast and decide for themselves right yeah, you just don't have that. It no. breaks breaks a, a basic uh obligation which the government has to its citizens. Well
1: what you end up with is people saying to themselves and saying to people like me Well, you know, I've been trying to get a council house for a long time. I don't make a lot of money. Uh, I've got a wife and three kids, but, you know, I can't get on the housing ladder because I just have to keep renting and I keep having to pay through the nose to a ghastly, horrible, nasty landlord. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to go and get a boat from Calais. I'm going to sail it across to Hastings. I'm going to walk off uh, onto the beach at Hastings and I'm going to get into a coach and they're going to give me a council house. Or a hotel. I mean, it's mad, isn't yeah,
0: it? Yeah, no, it is crazy. I mean, it's, and, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, I always think I always look at these things in, in, in the long term, and I think I think we've we've just had a, a, a sort of cultural environment where uh, borders have been denigrated. But mm. the idea of having a firm border, and it, it, it's not, I mean, it's not to exaggerate, Mike, to to think that the, basically the people that that you know a lot of the broadcast media and certainly a lot of uh, thinkers in ac- academia. Mm basically look at national borders, which are, are, are just a basic fundamental requirement of a democracy. They look at these things as, as sort of artificial, they look at it as exclusionary mm. um, or unjust. Yeah. You know? and, 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 and actually, it's one of the many, many areas where mainstream opinion, which we in the Social Democrats think we are pretty much on top of, is not represented well. No, you no know? because these
1: people say, and they're in charge of the tiller, by the way, mm. um, what's wrong with uh, somebody wanting to come here for a better life? Well, how about you give a better life to the people who are already here, the people yeah. who have worked all their lives to get a better life, but who are stymied at every opportunity by people who come in from other countries?
0: Yeah, but it's but it's the basic, Mike. It's even, even, I, this is why the, the, the thinking behind it really matters. Because mm. we, you know, you, national citizen preference, the idea of government looking after its citizens... It's just fundamental. Yeah. That's basic governance. Yeah. And if you've, if you've lost the sight of that, and you, you ask yourself, what is the government for? What is the UK government for? It's, it's for UK citizens. That's, yeah. that's what it's for. It's for the welfare and interests of people here and who've paid taxes here. And if you, if you unpick that slowly, pretty much, over the years, people's faith in the system uh, is, is, is gone. That's, Absolutely. And that's what we risk.
1: No, listen, very well said, William. As ever, uh, William Clauston talking great sense there, head of the uh, Social Democratic Party, uh, which is a burgeoningly new party. Uh, but a lot of people find themselves uh, uh, sort of drifting towards them because they're doing and saying the kind of things the Conservative Party used to say. They're all about social justice. What is wrong, by the way, with being British and wanting something good for British people? What is wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with inviting people to come and live here from other countries. That's entirely correct and entirely um, um, possible for anyone who wants to come here. But what we can't do is give priority to people who come here illegally because they've paid a human trafficker to put them in a dinghy to carry them across the Channel, to get them to Dover, to get them to Hastings, to get them to Bexhill, to get them to Normans Bay, wherever you want to say that they've landed, and to then say, oh, don't worry about uh, your asylum-seeking case. Your application has been turned down, but you can have a council house anyway. It's absolutely bonkers. The Independent
0: Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Let's go now, though, to Charles Ray. Um, Sorry, not Charles Ray. That's the wrong person. We're going to go to Victoria Hills, Chief Executive of the Royal Town Planning Institute, uh, because, in fact, we're going to talk about planning rather than planning for the rest of the show, which is what I should have been doing earlier because then I would have known that we were going to talk to Charles Ray in the next hour. But this is what happens when people give me bits of paper that I put in front of me, and I just read off them like an idiot. Let's say hello to Victoria. Very good morning to you. Welcome.
3: Good morning. Hello, how
1: are you? I'm very well indeed. Uh, Town planning. Now, there's an interesting subject uh, to talk about, because one of the things that we hear all the time, Victoria, uh, is that basically town planning is a complete and utter mess. Most people want to do something. They get told they can't do it by the local council. The Tories are now saying that they're going to slash the red tape out of town planning, which I'm not entirely sure is the right idea, is it?
3: Well, it's a great to have an opportunity to put the record straight, if if you like. What yeah. we've seen today, the government are publishing a very ambitious white paper. It's got a whole heap of questions in it, whole heap of Im- images in it. Mm. But what's very clear, as evidenced by the Prime Minister's own statement at the front of the document, is just how important planning is and just how seriously the government is taking it mm. in helping us to build our way out of this pandemic for a green recovery building a sustainable future. So I think it's really important the government have recognised the importance of planning. Now is the time for them to put the money where the mouth is and help us to resource it. Because right. over the last 10 years, we've seen 40% cuts in local authority planning departments. How can they possibly help deliver this um, with that backdrop? So um, we we there is an awful lot of detail in this. They published it at midnight. So some of us haven't had that much sleep yet. So we're going to be churning through that detail over the next few weeks um, and beyond to look at the Uh, the nub of the proposals. But let's be clear, there is a strong role for planning here. The government have stated that. Um, They stated the importance of engaging with local communities to talk about their future. You've just been talking about working from home. Mm. We're all spending far more time at home now than we ever did do. I'm broadcasting live from my daughter's bedroom here where I've been for the last five months. And so people are looking out the window and thinking about their local communities. They want to be able to walk and cycle safely, Want to be able to get down to local shops they also want to have somewhere and um, that they can live their children can live their parents can live um and so it's a really great time to start having this conversation about planning yeah um for the future.
1: But they've obviously got the impression, rightly or wrongly, uh, Victoria, that there's something wrong with the current planning rules. There's something wrong uh, with the availability uh, and, and the kind of agility, if you like, of local council planning. It seems to me that they're saying, you know, what we need to do is to get rid of all of the barriers to what people want to do and make it easier for them to build things.
3: Well, I don't think that is actually quite what they're saying. And, and actually, if I may, now not the time to get into a, a scrap with government because we've got a global pandemic. We've got an economic downturn and possibly we've got a hard exit. So what we need to do is talk about solutions. The government have put on a very big change on the table today. Um, and let's be clear, this sort of change, moving to more zonal based system, they're talking about three categories of land. Uh, they're talking about growth, renewal and protect. Personally, we feel that's a little bit simplistic, Um, but this is going to take time to deliver this sort of change, primary legislation. What we need to do now is ensure that local authorities can respond to help keep the development show on the road right now. So it's great to have a grand plan for the future. This plan is going to take some time um, to wash through. We want to be working hand in hand with government on that plan. But local authorities are really at the coalface right now of this pandemic. They need help now um, to have those really important conversations with developers, house builders, people who want to build uh, schools and healthcare. care. Um, and so, yes, let's have a conversation about the future, but let's focus on what we need to do right now as well.
1: Yes. Well, Robert Jenrick said this. Our complex planning system has been a barrier to building the homes that people need. It takes seven years to agree local housing plans and five years just to get a spade in the ground. You know, that's his words, not mine. So I'm afraid, you know, you may may not want to get into it, but the fact is they're saying that the planning rules at the moment are actually contravening anybody's ability to build anything.
3: Well, listen, there's an element of fake news about that because the number of permissions that come through every year far outstrip the government's own targets. If everybody who applied for permission um, last year actually built a home, that would be a wonderful thing. So we we do not agree that planning is the problem here. It's actually the delivery model. Anybody who can resource uh, a planning department to the extent um, that they're able to get going uh, with those aspirations to deliver a green, sustainable growth locally, they're, they're doing it. We've got countless examples of that. I have experience of this myself. Um, but I think you know, that let's move away from the planner bashing. As far as I'm concerned, it's fake news. Uh, Let's move forward and look about how planning can be part of the green recovery and quite frankly is being part of the green recovery. So what is different then
1: about this government policy? How is that going to change people's ability to build and how much is it going to speed the process up?
3: Well, what we've seen here is a real commitment to that, that, having a strong local plan. You know, you quoted the worst case example there of seven years getting a local plan in place. That is worst case. There are a lot of places that can get it through far, far quicker and are doing so. But the government's made a commitment here to engaging with the community genuinely upfront. Um, if that is a genuine commitment, I think that's something that we all look forward to and getting communities far more involved. Um, they, they've also made a commitment to design codes and being very clear as to what someone is is not expecting. And, and, and again, we welcome that. The things we have a bit of a question mark by is how is all of this going to deliver affordable homes? How is all of this going to deliver on net zero so uh, meeting climate action uh, climate change requirements um, and how is this going to deliver um the kind of uh, address the strategic sort of inequalities that we've seen that have been born out quite frankly very recently people are staying at home and it's become very apparent you know the people who have to work at home who don't have the gardens don't have the space standards some of these homes don't even have windows mm. and this can't continue um, we've really got to um, work together to deliver the places that everybody wants to uh, wants to live in. So um, there's a lot of detail in here. There's a lot of very nice pictures as well, which show that planning has actually delivered some very nice places. So, you know, that's very helpful um, in the conversation we're having. Um, but I think as we move forward, we need to think very seriously about not how we just engage communities in the plan-making stage, but how they can be part of the process um, throughout, so people don't get disillusioned. Um, so uh, you know, there's there's a lot of detail in here. Um, I'm delighted that it's a three month consultation because that gives us an opportunity to be part of the discussion with government. We haven't necessarily been as involved as we would have liked to have been to date, um, but there's a big opportunity here for planning to help deliver a sustainable, resilient, uh, and uh, and green future. Um, for communities, which, you know, we, that's what we all want, surely. I mean, we keep,
1: we keep hearing about um, how busy certain parts of the country are. Um, the difficulty, I suppose, is finding that balance between building places where people can live, but where they can also work. Because it seems to me that, you know, the southeast of this country is incredibly overcrowded. There's too much traffic. Uh, there's too many people. There's too much congestion. I mean, not at the moment. You wouldn't know that that was the case. But I mean, you know, basically people need to live near and, and, and there and around London. But is there an opportunity here to build sort of, you know, communities outside of London which can actually work?
3: Well, what, we, what we've what we said through our own campaign, Clown the World We Need, is that there is an opportunity here. To deliver on the government's own ambition their words to level up um, and there are huge sways of communities out there who would benefit from some of that leveling up to do that uh, you need to have a plan and that's why we, you know it's great that we recognize the importance of, of having a plan but it's not just a plan you've got to have the resourcing to do that so, all too often, you know, not not pointing any fingers here, but developers may choose to develop in areas where they can make most money. We have to find a way of incentivizing um, development across the whole of the UK and beyond, um, so that it doesn't just get concentrated. That location of development, though, is important. You know, if we want to deliver on net zero, we need to put homes, hospitals, schools, healthcare. You Know the jobs, places where people are going to work and want to be. We need to put those in locations where they can get to them mm. through walking, through cycling, um, or dare I say it, through public transport. What because about driving? Is, What's wrong you know, with driving? And people are, um, are living in very much a local environment. Um, and we may see you haven't mentioned you haven't, mentioned,
1: you haven't mentioned driving, Victoria, which is by far and away the the, the method of transport that more people than ever use.
3: Well, you say that, but the roads have been exactly quiet uh, recently. People Not in the the southeast, they're um, not.
1: I've never seen them so busy.
3: Well, I'm in the southeast now. And, um, you know, maybe we're begged to death on on that point. Um, Well, you're wrong.
1: Well, you're wrong because it takes me three hours to drive to Sussex on a Friday afternoon when it used to take an hour and a half because nobody's using the train because nobody's encouraged to use the train because people were told to stay away from public transport. So the roads are an absolute nightmare, not least because they're all being dug up as well.
3: Well, I mean, this is why putting strong planning in place, thinking about how people are going to move around in the future—not just now, but in the future—is really, really important. Particularly if we're going to deliver on net zero. Um, so, if, of course, in the short term, some people have returned to cars. Um, is that is that a trend that's going to continue into the future? These are very important questions that we need to, you know, have open and honest conversations. Um, about. And, you know, we'll have to agree to differ on that one because that's a part of the world that I know particularly well. And, um, and, uh, well, where do well, you live then? Uh, I don't live, but I grew up in Horsham. So, um, you know, I, I know right. that area and, and that particular motorway is subject to some major roadworks at the moment um well every, I, I mean
1: every road in the southeast of england seems to be subject to major roadworks at the moment but the, there is no doubt in anybody's mind who drives for a living many people do the fact is we've got uh, more and more cars and vans delivering parcels to people who are shopping online you know we've got more and more uh, discouraging sort of noises coming out of lots of political mouths about people not driving but it's not working because more and more people are driving because they feel safer in their cars than they do on public transport
3: but I, I think this is a re- really important in the context of what we're talking about, planning reform. We need to look at these very big issues about where people are living, how they're living, where they need to travel around, and how they're going to travel around here. And you've got to t- you can't just do that in a short term way. You've got to look at that over over a period of 10, 15 years and beyond to 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 come up with a comprehensive strategy, which we would call a local plan, to manage all of right. that.
1: Right, but that's um, what I'm saying. I mean, wouldn't it make sense to build more? communities around places where it's a bit quieter, so that you're not just building more communities where it's really busy already.
3: Well, what we would say is it makes more sense to build communities around places where they can get around in a sustainable way. That that we, We've been very clear um, ab- ab- about that going forward. But, you know, I, I think getting back to what the government's talking about today, major planning reform going forward, um, we welcome the opportunity, the recognition that nobody's going to be able to build themselves out of a a crisis, out of a pandemic, without having a very, very strong uh, local planning uh, and uh, a local plan in place. What we would like to see is a bit more strategic planning. And that may be a bit missing um, from the the government's approach, what they've put out today. Because, of course, you know, it's not just about districts and what goes on at a very local level. It's about how these places join together um, at city region level, for example. Um, so, you know, there, there, are some, there, there are some clear takeaways from this document in terms of driving for quality design, in terms of having a plan-led system with more community engagement. But what we really want some assurances on is how this is going to deliver on the things that communities need most, which is affordable homes, open space, um, access to jobs, um, but we live in interesting times. And, you know, you've raised some very interesting questions about, you know, how how will people continue moving around and forward? And I was listening very uh, avidly to your earlier earlier caller and and you were discussing, you know, jobs. There's a lot to a lot to absorb it. There is. Uh, we're five months into a pandemic. So, you know, we are le- we're learning as we go along. Um, but one thing is for sure, if you haven't got a clear spatial framework that everybody signed up to then you're not all going forward in the in the the same direction no i think
1: that's true victoria thanks very much indeed victoria hills chief executive of the royal town planning institute um i think a lot of people would have questions about what we are planning to do and where we are planning to do it when we're planning to do it and with what skills we are planning to do it and i think possibly that is part of the problem as well Uh, Because if you're going to go banging on about sustainable growth and sustainable travel, um, you know, you're missing the point. People drive, people get in cars, people drive around in vans, people deliver things for Amazon. You know, you can't do away with roads and get everybody on bikes. Sorry, that ain't happening. It's not working. That is not the future. This is Talk Radio.
0: Online, on DAB and on the Talk
2: Radio app. Talk Radio.
0: Mid-Morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
1: Now, over the course of the last few months, I would say that we have built ourselves quite the reputation uh, as being one of the few places where free speech is allowed, where people can say what they want, where people can say what they think, and where people can argue with me about almost any subject under the sun. I'm delighted to say uh, that we're going to welcome a new voice here to the Independent Republic, and it's a Helen Dale, a writer, a lawyer, political commentator, originally from Australia, now ensconced in this part of the world. Helen, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, I think I'm right in saying that we're always on the lookout for what can only be described as kind of, you know, fresh voices, fresh faces, fresh kind of ideas. People who, like you, are interested in kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, trying to work out what it is that uh, that we are all about here, uh, living as we do on this one planet Earth, trying to make sense of it all, and trying really, really hard to fight back against what I call the forces of darkness, i.e. Uh, the wallies that want us to behave.
6: <laughs> yes, constantly being told what to do and what to say i have to say i didn't know about you until neil oliver because i've known neil oliver for quite a long time okay and so i found you through neil oliver because he tweeted his interviews so i watched them
1: right and he's (laughs) an amazing man he's an amazing man every every, you know every every week we talk to him and every week both he and i have a conversation sort of on messaging before he comes on what are we going to talk about this week and i'm always like well you know, I thought your column was quite interesting. Let's start with that and see where it goes. And we just kind of riff, really, and it just kind of goes into all sorts of interesting places. And I'm I'm sort of trying to to build up a, a stable of people like that, of which I think you will now become one, uh, where we just kind of talk about stuff, you know, because, you know, it's, it's, it's like you would sit down in your living room or in a pub and just have a conversation about what's right, what's wrong, what you think is going on. And it doesn't necessarily have to have a point. I don't have to keep interrupting you and correcting you and making sure that you don't, you know, in some way, um, you know, cross the boundaries of decency and all of the stuff that you have to do if you appear on the BBC for three and a half nanoseconds, you know. So so let's talk about Yes, your... I have
6: I have been on Newsnight. <laughs> that was a very interesting experience. Yes, I'm sure it would it be it was a couple of years ago now, and I'm not sure I want to do it again. <laughs> no, and I think
1: people are beginning to wake up, you know, because the people of, of both Australia and this country and America and all of the kind of the five eyes if if you like uh, the countries uh, that we call ourselves together on they are you know the people are quite smart you know they're not idiots and they are being talked down to all the time by people in the media who think they're cleverer than everybody else who think they're better than everybody else and i'm afraid they're not
6: well the, this was brought home to me when i uh, i mainly got known in the uk uh, because I did a lot of Brexit coverage and I covered Brexit for the Australian, which is the main national daily in Australia. And then I started being asked to write about it for publications over here, including the spectator and the mm. Tory graph. And the, th- I thought after that happened, Oh, well, I'll be able to go on and write my fourth novel now because people will lose interest in the lawyer who writes about Brexit and constitutional law. But one of the things I did manage to show while I was writing about Brexit was that I'm numerate. I mean, I did, reasonably well in maths at school and but that's literally what it is it's a good result in a maths a level and so what started to happen in March and one of them one commission I said no to because it was asking me to do something I didn't know anything about which you know, to pretend to be an epidemiologist basically right. but uh, is please write some pieces on coronavirus and some of them I said yes to but the ones that wanted me to mug in a discipline that i in which I have no training, um, I said no to. But I became aware very quickly of what was going on here, which was, and you noticed it at the the daily presses, uh, the media class was innumerate. You had all these people, extraordinary numbers of people who simply didn't understand well gcse maths basically Mm. i mean it was the stuff that they were getting wrong apart from some of the stuff about exponential functions which is a bit trickier but nearly everything they were getting wrong like the calculation of ro and that kind of thing was just basic the first couple of years of high school maths and i just thought all of these people are sitting here telling us how clever they are and they can't do sums i'm horrified
1: right and also, they seem to be incapable of following any sort of logical pattern of conversation as well. You know, when you see the likes of Robert Peston writing a oh, question. Oh, he was the one. Um, he
6: was the one that really alarmed yeah, me at first. Yeah, well, and I mean, I, I, I knew it was a bipartisan issue because I talked to a friend of mine um, who who runs a small media company, and she's also numerate, and she just said. I'm sorry, I used to agree with Robert Peston a mm. lot. And then I've just watched him ask the most ridiculous and innumerate questions and I'm horrified and I want to pick up a corner of the line and crawl underneath. Right. And I just thought, I it's not just me. And she was a Remainer and a lifelong Labour voter and all of that kind of thing. So it wasn't just me. A lot of people noticed this and how bad it was.
1: Yes. And I mean, I come from a background of sort of tabloid newspapers where, um, you know, the cleverest people in journalism that I've ever known have always worked for tabloids because what you have to do is you have to kind of dilute and melt down some of the most complex issues and get them into four paragraphs and get them into a way of, of understanding for people uh, who would find otherwise a very lengthy perhaps article a little bit complicated but what we seem to have now is a, is a journalist class of people who want to make it sound more complicated than it is so that only they can kind of determine what it is that's going on.
6: Well I mean there's that old joke I don't know whether um it's true in every particular but the story was that the mirror and the, the journalists at the mirror and the journalists at the guardian swapped yeah to do some to do i, I don't know whether it was a weekend issue or whether it was a da- one of the daily papers it was a quite a few years ago now and the mirror journalist could do the guardian journalist job no problems. Yeah. And the Guardian journalists were all absolutely stuffed and <laughs> having to call the mirror people up and say, please help. Yes. We can't do this. We can't write it in 600 words.
1: Yes, they can't manage to melt it down. But, I mean, you've written on some very interesting pieces uh, of, of time. You wrote a piece in, in July about the BBC... Uh, You've written about cancel culture as well. I mean, how do you find your audience? Do you kind of feel as though the audience that you have is already there? Are you reaching a new audience? Are you convincing more people to come around to your way of thinking? How's how's that all going?
6: Well, the the piece that was in The Spectator this week, which I've tweeted out and you can have a read of it, um, was very much about how I haven't been cancelled Nobody is stopping me from writing from a wide number of publications, mainly in the UK and Australia, as you would expect, Uh, because my first novel won the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize, and it became a big bestseller. And that meant that I had an opportunity to, to write in the national press first in Australia and then in the UK. I'm a dual national, and I went to university over here. I went to Oxford and then to Edinburgh. And so I had no problem getting an an audience to read my stuff because there was this novelist with this big prize. It's certainly not in Australia. What I noticed, though, was that it changed over time. And this is what my Spectator piece was about. And it's a change that I find quite alarming mm. because I've written about cancel culture quite a few times before. But the first time I wrote about it was in The Guardian in 2015. Mm. Now, I'm quite conservative. I'm in a proper sort of traditional Conservative Tory member of the Tory party. They are. They are. I'm. I'm cancelled now, and 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 that kind of thing. And when I was in Australia, I worked for a politician who was also in the classical liberal tradition of conservatism. So kind of like Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. He, he was a senator, and his name was David Lionhelm He's retired now, and but at the same token, left leaning publications had no problem going. Oh, Helen can you please write about X for us? Hmm. And I had a perfectly satisfactory and pleasant relationship with people at The Guardian, people elsewhere, to the point where I could write about cancel culture. And I did in 2015, using a mixture of Australian and UK and American case studies. And people thought it was fine. The article was popular. I wrote other things for them. And then I noticed, as a result of 2016, And I actually went and looked up my media archive and found that the last time I wrote for The Guardian was in July 2016. So it was after Brexit or after the leave vote, but before Donald Trump. Right. And suddenly the doors were shut. So basically, what was happening, and this is why I call it the silo effect. I, I grew up in the country, so you need to imagine those big grain mm. silos. You see pictures of in country Australia, the big metal things with hoppers next to them to pour the grain in in in, in the sheep wheat belt areas of, of country Australia. And so, what was ha- and the thing is, you have to keep the light and the moisture out, or otherwise it starts to turn into yes basically. And, occ- and occasionally,
2: <laughs>
1: occasionally people fall into them and die. Is, is and yes, yes, you I do get things
6: it. like that so but <laughs> the, the point is they're sealed right and what i noticed was that people were t- finishing up in their ideological silos right. now i don't like that because i don't think that i'm right all the time and any conservative who gets into this whole thing of thinking you're right all the time you finish you finish up becoming just like the people you're criticizing mm. and you can't do that i mean i am absolutely determined to not land finish up in a silo at least intellectually so i have subscription for example my main left-wing source of reading is the london review of books Mm. and i do it deliberately and i read it regularly even though i disagree with much of what is in there i know it's well written i know it's well researched and i have respect for the editorial values of the people who run the magazine but by the same token i mean i write regularly for the spectator and the australian and and uh, quillette and i know that the people who are ideologically opposed to me don't read those and they don't seek them out. And I think that's very, very dangerous because you finish up in this situation where people are completely convinced that they're right all the time Mm. and they only read Comfort food. It's like the it's the intellectual equivalent of comfort food. Yes. Is the phrase that I use in my article.
1: Well, I well I was uh, harking back to Rod Little's um, wife's comment, which was on the day of the referendum result, when she took the kids to school, uh, where they live in a very nice leafy part of I think Kent or Sussex or something like that. Um, And she said she came back to, to, to the house after having dropped the kids at school and she said all the mums were standing aghast at the gates of the school because they couldn't believe that people had voted for Brexit because they didn't know anyone that would have done that. And it was like, well, that's because you don't mix with people other than the people that you stand outside the school gates with. You have no idea or concept of what other people think because you don't know uh, who they are. You don't listen to anybody outside of your own sort of intellectual bubble um, and you mix only with each other. And so that's the problem that we, I think, have. And we need to fix that in this country. Otherwise, I think we're going to head for a very dark place indeed.
6: Well, the thing that is alarming about that sort of thing, it didn't used to. Exists to the same extent in Britain as it does in the United States is political segregation, and scholars like Matthew Goodwin yeah. ha, um, at the University of Kent have written about this. Where what happens is that happened was that people who voted Remain tend to live in very geographically concentrated areas and mm. don't know any levers. Whereas levers are more diffuse, I mean, which is why they, there was great electoral benefit to, to being the party of leave for the Conservatives in to in December 2019, because they're more diffuse and they're all over the country. They can not only swing more seats, but because of that diffuse geographical distribution, you finish up with a situation where a lever will talk to many remainers mm. as well as to lots of levers as well and this is a well-known phenomenon in in political science and in in psychiatry which is where conservatives and i have to say in in this country it includes left-leaning levers as well because they are a small minority Mm. are much better at reading and understand and i mean reading not in Terms of a newspaper article or a magazine or the internet, but reading as in psychologically understanding their opponents because they're exposed to them more regularly. They're they're forced out of the silo. I was forced out of my silo. I'm quite conservative, but because I was a novelist and most people in the arts are left-leaning yeah. and I was always in the minority I mean w- there was a joke made about me that I use on my Twitter that was by an Australian left-leaning newspaper they called me Australian literature's lone classical liberal <laughs> and I think it was meant to be a slur and I didn't I, that, sounds a quite, slur. that sounds I, I, quite yes, good. And so I thought I'm going to keep that yeah. that's mine now <laughs>
1: yeah exactly right and, I mean it was like when the observer wrote a piece about me uh, and talk radio and basically told them told them that the world of, of, of observer readership that I was the kind of king of the anti-woke shock jocks. I was like, I'm having that. I'll take that all the way to the, to the bank. Mean, uh, well, if you indeed.
6: want to be, I mean, he's just retired now, but if you really want to be absolutely heroic and occupy a position in British political culture that is akin to an Australian radio announcer, then you want to be Britain's Alan Jones. Okay.
1: I'll look it out. A G, uh,
6: Alan Jones, he's retired now, but he owned Sydney Radio right. and many other radio stations in Australia, but particularly in Sydney for decades. Yeah. And he, he became the voice of the sort of centre right and the right in mm. the country. That wasn't to say he was always right or that you always got the right end of the stick. Yeah. But he did have this captivating quality, Alan Jones did, uh, and dragged in huge numbers of listeners particularly many working class and ethnic yes. minority listeners which well they know of course they, they know
1: how to do uh, talk radio in australia in the same way they know how to do it in america and we've never known how to do it in this country properly because i believe not part
6: of the tradition well
1: no because we've been ruined by the bbc because the bbc has got such a grip uh, on the culture in this country uh, that i think they've poisoned it
6: it's really unfortunate because you do need a lively, I mean, Australia has the ABC, which is the national broadcaster, Right. which, and I, and I have to say, I have a lot of, I mean, you've had Calvin Robinson on here who's had a lot to do with the defund the BBC yeah. and I'm sympathetic to their arguments and I like Calvin enormously. And I think he's very clever and, and very sensible, but a lot of the suggestions about, Oh, just make the BBC funded through central taxation, the way the ABC is in mm. Australia. I don't think it would work. The ABC of Australia is not as good as the BBC and it is more biased. Yeah. You cannot rely on the news aspect of the ABC in Australia it will often lead out telling facts. Mm. Whereas I've very, very seldom seen the BBC do that, unless it's been something like the innumeracy I was talking about, yes. where it's not political bias. You're just dealing with a journalist who's not done any maths since, right. since that
1: although, although I would say that you're, you're right to say that, that generally speaking, the BBC is not as bad as the, its critics make it out to be. However, mm. it's not so much in how they report the news, it's in what they report. And I think one of the things they're very guilty of is ignoring quite a few stories that go on, which lots of people are talking about, but which they don't deem important enough to make the news.
6: Well, there's even been an element of it with the Lebanon issue. Yeah, People are having to be told now as a result of this accident, and it's not terrorism, it's clearly an accident, yeah. but people are now having to be told in what, the, what a parlour state Country of Lebanon is, and despite the fact that it used to be this lovely sunny place where mm. people went off and and because they all spoke French and yeah. had patisseries and lovely and wine nice and wine, yeah. you know uh, I mean all of that kind of thing and people are now having to be told all of this background information about the terrible situation that Lebanon is in and has been in for many years mm. precisely because the BBC and it was the BBC just totally failed to pay any attention to Lebanon yeah. despite what was going on in Syria and Iraq, which right. are, you know, nearby countries. Exactly. And that's also an the, example the, of it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And the fact that, you know, the basic uh, government of Lebanon uh, is corrupt uh, is, is linked to Hamas um, and is a dreadful and ghastly organization, which is strangling, well, they use this, uh, strangling they use this its own people. System.
6: They use this pillar system or millet system, uh, uh, which is very very common in countries with, that are divided between Islam and Christianity yeah. and it's a very very bad system of governance. there's a lot of empirical evidence to show that it doesn't work mm. you know, where basically you have Muslims in one corner and Christians in another corner and historically before they were all killed or thrown out you, had, mm. you also had you had Jews and Orthodox yeah. as well right. um, uh, governing themselves with their own laws. And even having different rules about contract and different rules about commercial arrangements and different rules about education and schooling, things that should be set at the cent- either centralised or at the state level and should be applied to everyone uniformly. But people do it because it's, it means you don't have nasty fights.
1: Mm exactly it's a
6: way to try and avoid religious sectarianism but it's 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 cheap but it's not cheerful and it doesn't work very well
1: it really doesn't and and the bbc of all organizations should be much better at reporting on that sort of thing and i think that's part the the irony
6: is of course the irony is of course the reason i know that little detail about lebanon is because australia has famously taken very very large numbers of lebanese immigrants particularly the lebanese christians Hmm. and i I mean, for example, Marie Bashir was the governor of New South Wales and Lebanese Maronite background. No. And, I mean, to the point where Australia, I mean, this is the basis of the country's immigration policy. Literally, it's just Australia PLC. It goes around the world and just creams the top, the best, mm. off of huge numbers of countries' immigrant groups. And and I, it's probably fair to say that, in a minor way, Australia has contributed to the problems in Lebanon by taking so many people of talent from that country. Yeah. And ooh, they do very well in Australia. They're, they're the classic market-dominant minority or and, modern yeah, minority. And
1: just kind of hollowing it out. Let me ask you about Boris Johnson and the Conservatives here, Helen, because as a classical kind of Conservative yourself, you must look at some of the things that the Boris Johnson administration is doing and, and scream in terror and run out of the room.
6: Well, I am cons- I'm concerned about two things. One, he won't keep those Northern and Midlands voters yeah. unless he takes a strong stand on cultural issues, on education, for yeah. example. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I would make Catherine sing the, the headmistress of Michaela, the education czar in this yeah. country and just basically make every school in the country a, a replica Michaela right. with a replica Michaela curriculum. Uh, and all the the same sort of rules Mm. because they're the kinds of things that people in those areas who have been underserviced and have been given, you know, not been treated well in terms of the education system want. So I think there's that issue going on there. He will not keep those voters unless he takes a cultural stand. I mean, these were people who stood on the doorstep And told Tory canvassers, and I know this because I'm in the Conservative Party, things like, Jeremy Corbyn got up and announced his pronouns. It's nonsense. There were more Palestinian flags at Labour conference than there were Union Jacks. You know, things like this were being said on the doorstep. Mm. You know, my child comes home from school and can't do maths. Things like this were said. Um, as well as complaints about Labour canvassers behaving badly. That was the other thing that came back. Oh, they they were rude to me or they Mm. called my grandmother a racist or, uh, or, you know, said things like, and in one particular situation, they said the grandmother was a racist Mm. in one story that I encountered. And it was a mixed race couple. And the grandmother in question who was being traduced came over to the country on the Windrush. And she turns up in the background with her grey hair. And she just said, oh, good reef so there's that so there's that part of it right and then there's the other thing is nanny statism doesn't work sugar taxes don't work no other countries have tried these things including countries with higher state capacity than the united kingdom like denmark and australia they don't work you know australia had a huge issue with these things electronic cigarettes and tried to make them illegal and people were importing them from Britain and buying them from the NHS mm. and then bringing them to Australia. It was ridiculous. This, this was an issue when I was working for Senator Lionhelm and the country was becoming a laughingstock.
2: Yeah.
6: It doesn't work. Australia has much higher smoking rates than the UK uh, now because of the attitude to vaping as opposed to what happened uh, over here where yeah. people were much more relaxed about it. Take your cue from that. If you want people to lose weight, then you need to get them out and get them exercising and moving. You know, telling them they can't have another Mars bar isn't going to work. No. Because people just present it.
1: Of course. It's and and, and we don't like to be treated like idiots. Listen, Helen, uh, you've proven uh, the point that you are very much now a new member of the Independent Republic because uh, we've had to cut it short. I had no idea we were already talking for 25 minutes. So so let's do it again. Oh, sorry about no, that. No, no, not at all. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> let's do it again soon. Thank you so much for talking to us. Helen Dale, uh, who is, of course, uh, an author, uh, a thinker, um, a person of great merit for the Independent Republic and Mike Graham. I hope you enjoyed uh, talking and listening to her. Uh, she's a Lawyer as well. Um, one of the few lawyers I actually like. Many lawyers, of course, are out there uh, who I don't like, particularly barristers, particularly Julian Moron uh, and that woman uh, Seymour, whatever her name is. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots more for us to do before Alistair Stewart comes in at one o'clock. Right now, we're going to go live to San Diego uh, to talk to our good friend LaDonna Harvey from KOGO Breakfast Show uh, in uh, that beautiful part of Southern California. LaDonna, a very good morning to you. And a very good morning to you. Now, just before uh, you came on air, I was looking at a story about YouTube star Jake Paul, uh, who apparently has had his California mansion raided by the FBI in a place called Calabasas, uh, which I think I know vaguely. Um, This is a guy who's 23 years old. Um, He's a massively popular man on YouTube. Uh, He's made absolute bucket loads of money. Um, But he's, he's become part of an investigation into a looting spree at an Arizona shopping center.
7: Well, so uh, apparently he's from Scottsdale. I was in Phoenix whenever this happened. And he went to a Black Lives Matter protest, he says, to uh, to just check it out. You know, and he was doing it for... For for uh, journalistic purposes only. Of course. Uh, but apparently he was uh, he was a part of, of what turned into a riot, and uh, that he sparked a, a lot of interest, a lot of interest by the FBI, <laughs> um, and and other people that you really don't want interested in you. No, if possible, <laughs> you know if you could avoid it. I mean, without
1: wishing <laughs> to put too fine a point on it, are they suggesting that he may have been involved in some kind of looting spree?
7: Yes, they are suggesting that. Right. Um, and I think they've got they've got video evidence that he was certainly there. Right. I'm not sure they have video evidence that he actually looted, uh, but he was there when it happened. And, you know, it, it, you, you get uh, suspicions cast upon you if you happen to be in the middle of a riot.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I don't know what these people are thinking. I mean, it kind of, in a way, I guess, sums up the problem, doesn't it? You know, rich YouTube star loots store. And you think, right, what are you doing? You know, what is that? How is this helping uh, the underprivileged black community in America?
7: Well, and it doesn't. um, It's you know, you have you have uh, and I've said this before, you have significant problems with the criminal justice system in America. And we've known it for years, but now it's come to a head and we're going to have to fix it. We're going to have to fix, you know, the way that we sentence people. We're going to have to fix the uh, the disproportionate number of arrests in the black community and other communities of color. Uh, quite frankly, yes, um, these are these are legitimate gripes. And you have people who are legitimately griping about it. And you have other people who are co-opting this legitimate gripe to turn it into a, a, a spree of vandalism. A new and you new know, Anarchy. Right. Anarchy. I mean, here in, in San Diego, in this little town called La Mesa, they looted a jewelry store and a, and a secondhand sports shop and emptied them. Um, and, And this was after, again, a legitimate protest during the day, but when, you know, when night falls bad stuff starts to happen
1: yes absolutely right funnily enough i was talking to um a couple of members of my family over in uh, america who've been into new york recently and they were saying that actually new york city now and i don't know what it's like where you are but new york city now is quite a kind of mysterious and rather dark place because after 11 o'clock at night all the bars are shut and you know the kind of the crazies come out on the street and it's gone back to the way it used to be back in the 80s when it was quite a dangerous thing to be walking around very late at night in manhattan
7: Right. And and, I mean, things have changed across the country, Um, you know, here in in San Diego. Like when I drive to work, uh, there is a significant uh, number of homeless people who are now on the streets in the middle of the night. They're breaking into cars. They are you know, they're they're tearing things up. I've got a ring video of a guy checking uh, cars in my garage. Wow. Um, wearing a, you know, wearing all black face mask. I mean, this is much more organized than we've seen mm. before. Than You know, when we saw just random kind of crimes, it, it seems like it's more organized. And, and uh, frankly, it's, they're doing very good at it. It's quite, <laughs> it's, it's quite worrying,
1: it's very, really, isn't it? Because, probable. I mean, one thing that, uh, that we all kind of, I suppose, rely upon in our lives is that we are relatively safe going about our daily business. And when it starts to become uh, not the case, you start to worry.
7: Yeah. And it is starting to become not the case. Yeah. Um, you know, now that now that we're having this backlash against police, um, you know, if you try to call police for somebody who's breaking into a car in your garage, they don't even want it, They're not even going to come. No. They're like, yeah, you know, we yeah, file a report online. Well, what the hell is that going to do I know. And if the guys who know, I, you know that uh,
1: that's the case are just going to continue to break into your car because they know nobody's going to come and stop them. Very, very strange no. times. Indeed. Let's talk a bit about Michelle Obama. She's come out today to say that she is suffering uh, from low grade depression as a result of Donald Trump.
7: Well, I'm, I, I, okay, so she's a Democrat, and a lot of
1: Democrats. <laughs> I mean, that's depressing enough, from, I would have thought.
7: <laughs> a lot of Democrats are suffering from either low grade or high grade depression, yeah. or even psychosis over the damn thing. Right. Uh, Yeah, it's just, it's craziness. Um, I I think she's suffering from low-grade depression because Democrats aren't in power, period.
1: Yes, and the the best chance they've got is a man by the name of Joe Biden, which isn't a great chance.
7: Well, no, and, you know, right now they're floating the name that, you know, Michelle Obama may run with Joe Biden. Really? She's not going to do that. No. She's not. It's not going to happen. I mean, I could see Michelle Obama
1: running for office at some point, but not as his running mate.
7: No. If you're Michelle Obama, you have enough name power that you're yeah. going to run for president yourself. Right. Why in the world would you run second on a ticket?
1: Right. Never. Exactly right. And as far as the whole kind of uh, stage show last week of, uh, you know, let's maybe think about putting off the election. Um, that was oh. just a stage show, wasn't it?
7: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, it, that Everything that Donald Trump does is calculated to make the other side insane. Yeah. And he yeah. does. He's um, very good he's at it. He's not going to He is not going to delay the election. Uh, That is not going to happen. It is just absolutely not going to happen. It's unconstitutional, and there would be an absolute uprising in america yeah um he said it to set people on edge
1: right period and it works as ever like all the things that he does to set people on edge but listen LaDonna, we're out of time once again thank you very much indeed Ladonna harvey reporting into us from san diego california uh, where it is almost as hot as it is here i would imagine uh, lots more for us to do including coming up next some homeschooling on digital cameras how do they work how does that magic actually happen when you take a picture on your phone and then you can do anything you like with it which you couldn't do before digital cameras this is talk radio the independent republic of
0: mike graham on talk radio
1: And right now, it's time to get some more information and some more help uh, to educate yourself because basically we're doing homeschooling every single day at 12.30. It may well be that your children are now off school and if they keep saying to you, oh, we're on holiday now, that's all very well, keep them occupied, keep them doing, even if it's only one or two hours a day, some kind of homeschooling because they will need to get their brains back into gear in order to return in September to proper schooling and proper school hours and they will have forgotten, I'm afraid, uh, more than they ever knew about school and more than they ever knew uh, about socialising in school because they haven't been there for such a long time. So, we're going to talk today about something that perhaps doesn't get talked about very much in actual school. Uh, we're going to talk about digital cameras. And Thomas Crick George is Professor of Digital Education and Policy at Swansea University. Thomas, a very good morning, a good afternoon to you, I should say.
2: Hi, oh, Mike. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Now, I'm old enough, I'm afraid, to remember uh, getting the old 35mm film, sticking it in the back of the camera, winding it round, taking pictures. I actually did spend a bit of time as a youth um, developing my own pictures, which, which was a fascinating kind of process where you had, you know, the developer, the fixer, uh, an, an enlarger and all that sort of stuff. I used to do like black and white stuff. The digital cameras have been an absolute and utter revolution to people, haven't they? Yeah, so
5: we've seen not only the kind of the technological aspect of it, but the massive cultural shift around exactly as you describe people who used to have to buy 35 millimeter film and then have to you, have to, you take your, your your number of photos and you take it to the shop to go and get it processed right. and wait a bit of time to get the, the films back. Obviously, now with digital cameras, we've seen this quite profound shift to essentially instantaneous digital photos. And obviously, you know, as we're talking right now, Um, instantaneous video and audio. Mm.
1: And what was the advent of the digital camera? I mean, who kind of invented it? How did it come about? Well, so so I suppose the the underlying technology has been
5: around for a long time. And actually, um, some of the early work in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, um, at Bell Labs in the US... Um, is around the sort of development of the semiconductor industry. Um, Two two, uh, researchers at Bell Labs in the US won the Nobel Prize in the 1990s for their work that the underlying technology for digital cameras. But obviously, we only we only really saw the first um, kind of commercial cameras coming in uh, the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, And then actually, what caused the massive explosion in the use of digital cameras and digital images were were the smartphones, actually, that completely changed the game. And actually, essentially, everyone has a digital camera that they to carry around with them all the time
1: yes well i mean i'm gonna maybe surprise you now but maybe not i'm looking at my my photographs and my albums and i've got do you know how many photographs i've got on my phone have a guess Five thousand. Five thousand. Eight, Eighteen thousand and sixty nine. that's ridiculous isn't it and exa- i mean that's exactly, just mad i suppose it you
5: know <laughs> it, if, if you were if, if you were having to pay to have all those all those developed, you would never do it. So actually it means obviously we take so many more photos. Yeah, you know, they are talking about literally trillions of photos are taken every year by people. Right. And actually it's caused it has clearly caused a decline of the traditional camera industry, even digital cameras, because essentially everyone has a high quality um, digital camera that they carry around in their pocket. Yeah.
1: Well, do you know what's interesting as well? When I was um, um, much younger and my, my sister had gone into the, the, the sort of the Wall Street uh, trading business and she said to me one day, do you know who the biggest buyer of silver is in the world. And I said, no, no idea. And it was Kodak because Kodak used silver to make the film. And of course, now they don't do that anymore. And I think Kodak actually more or less went under as a company because they didn't see the advent of digital photography coming through and they didn't really prepare for it. Well, somewhat
5: embarrassingly, they, they they discovered digital cameras, you know, or, or they they developed commercial digital cameras at quite an early stage, mm. but they never thought it would be very big. So, you know, they <laughs> were heavily invested in right. in the in the in the traditional film industry, and obviously, that's you know, as you just described, it was around. You know, it was a chemical process; it was all based on silver compounds, right. and that's how you would get the, the photos developed. So obviously, with digital cameras, it's essentially an electronic kind of photo detectors. and then it turns, you know, algorithms turn it into digital data, yeah. which is stored on a memory card, and you can then. Do stuff, and uh, you know you can process and, and view and share images, and obviously um, that was catastrophic for, for Eastman Kodak, the company. Yeah. You know we've seen them essentially being overtaken by all of the major electronics company, and essentially they've sold all of their intellectual property, and, and they they don't really exist as, as they once did no. back in the powerhouse of the seventies and eighties.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? And, and I mean, as as we move through, I suppose new technologies. We've got four K now. You've had HD television. Is that all sort of part of the digital Um, development and revolution.
5: Yeah. So I suppose we, we have high expectations around the quality of our digital experience. So, yeah. you know, as you describe, you know, high definition television, we want to be able to stream stuff. We want to view and take high quality pictures, but I suppose that it starts to get to the ability of how can the human eye detect the difference between you know various high quality images. And also some of it is quite subjective and it's about artistic and aesthetic. So yes. the idea of you would use certain features to, to produce, kind of evoke an emotional image or, you know, to kind of an emotion in an image or sharing stuff. And actually that's the challenge we've started to get very very high quality digital cameras it's not just about the number of megapixels or you know essentially as a proxy for the quality of the photo it is about the process it is about how images are can be kind of you know use algorithms to manipulate and um, and use filters and, and, and change images and as we know that can be used both positively to make people look wonderful as I'm sure you do on Instagram and on TikTok and all these various other platforms but actually you know images can be very easily manipulated and shared online
2: Right
1: and as far as photography is concerned i mean professional photographers that i used to work with when i was working in fleet street uh, were terribly well prepared and trained and you know they were always interested in the light and the aperture uh, and the and the exposure and all of that and that's all just gone now isn't it because you don't really need to know any of that
5: it has, but I suppose the, the benefit of this has made photography much more accessible to wider people because essentially yeah. um, you don't need to learn all of this stuff if you want to use a, an SLR camera, which would have been the kind of traditional uh, film-based camera. You've got all of these set features, and actually you can use software to process and make them look very, very high quality. So it has made photography much, much more accessible to the, the general population. And obviously d- digital cameras are have been very, very cheap, and obviously now they're part of your mobile phone, then you can you have them with
1: you all the time right and so I mean can we look forward to even more kind of um, advancements if you like I mean it's hard to imagine I mean I've got an iPhone um, 11 I think it is um, and the camera is so good um, and the pictures are so sharp that I can't actually imagine it being any better really but I mean I guess somebody will come up with something that will go actually we've got this now
5: well I suppose we'll continue to get better quality cameras and it'll be about the quality of the lens and the quality of the processing to create mm. the types of images we want but actually, then now it's down to you have to store all these things as you describe you've got 13,000 uh, photos in your, on your phone and actually what do we meaningfully want to do with them so yeah. I suppose we are then talking about the rest the rest of our digital infrastructure to be able to share these photos you know back in the day it used to be with mms and kind of you know, multimedia messages yeah. now we can share it over a variety of platforms and social media it's really changed the culture around sharing imagery and how that's changed the media in general Um, and actually actually we need high, high bandwidth and digital infrastructure to be able to do all this stuff all the time everywhere we want to do it
1: yes and i know that a lot of photographers as well who are professionals have complained to me that you know the whole kind of issue of copyright seems to have gone out the window you know because you can really chase your tail probably all day if you're a professional photographer looking for who's used your picture on twitter without giving you any kind of credit and certainly without paying you um so is that a problem i mean can we get better at that yeah yeah i mean increasingly that has been a real issue
5: with i suppose you know maintaining intellectual property of images and i suppose kind of video and media more generally Mm. i suppose it is increasingly easy to detect this kind of stuff because you can use algorithms and various approaches to to identify copyright infringement but i suppose it also means a lot of other people are are content creators and i suppose that's essentially become a job because Mm. you can you can you can have a career creating content and sharing images and sort of profiling your life so it's again I think it reinforces that cultural shift around it's, it's accessible to everyone and it's really changed the way that we share information about our life and the fact that we can I suppose essentially we could chronicle our life 24-7 and if people want to watch that then that's um, that's up to
2: them
1: Yeah sure and as far as like the say the movie business or the TV business is concerned you know we always used to hear people saying things like you know now that we stream music all the time we've lost something uh, in terms of listening to a vinyl Record because it had a bit more depth to it. It was a bit richer and all of that. Are there would, yeah. there, would there be people who would say you know the loss of old fashioned filmmaking um, has kind of has 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 gone forever because now everything's shot on digital and, and you don't have that richness.
5: Well, it's certainly a skill that's probably in, in, in less demand and is less accessible. But interestingly, you're seeing some people revert back to traditional methods, mm. particularly with filmmaking, because they want they want to get a specific specific aesthetic or, or or way of filming by using older methods and I right. suppose that means it's it's down to an artistic choice about what you how you want to present images and video and and how you want to use that as part of your kind of artistic um, license but I I suppose the the, the kind of wider point around the accessibility is really really key because essentially you know we can all take really high quality images um, with us all the time and you know I suppose that that really changes the nature of how people you know I think particularly media is a good example you can see when something happens and you know there's a there's a breaking news event and people are recording clips and sharing content that gives a very, very real visceral experience of what's happening on the ground.
1: Yeah. And is there anything that people are sort of working on? I mean, I know we were talking about cameras getting better and, and no matter how good you think the one you have now is, there will be an improvement. Is there anything that, that, that people are working on sort of, you know, which could be revolutionary uh, about taking pictures?
5: I suppose the next thing will probably be sort of an augmented reality virtual reality type piece so yeah. actually you know you, you kind of integrating mm. these sort of embedded experiences so actually you know if you're looking through a kind of some sort of digital medium you can then have annotations around the world in which you're viewing so i think that's that's where you start to see the kind of uh, the sort of enhanced digital experience yes. about the world in which you're living right and i suppose that also depends on the types of devices we have and again back to the the kind of digital connectivity that we can um, we can have this stuff um, everywhere we want it to work.
1: Sure. Thomas, thank you very much indeed. Very informative. Uh, this is why we love doing homeschooling because you learn stuff that you didn't think you needed to know. But now you do. So now you can go forth and multiply and talk about the uh, uh, digital camera that you have on your phone. Uh, Thomas Quick Professor of Digital Education and Policy at Swansea University. It is quite remarkable. I mean, if any of you like me are old enough to remember having to take your film out of the camera, having to make sure that you don't expose it to anything like light imagine make, making sure that you don't have to put it through the old security scanners at the airport which happened to a friend of mine uh, who was a professional photographer who had a b- bunch of rolls of film of something that he'd taken pictures of in Canada came back to New York it had all been wiped <laughs> and he couldn't get back and take them again the plank. But there we are. Uh, Some things like that do happen. Talk
0: Radio across the UK, online on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.